0: In my time machine. Reminiscing everything was so promising. Siblings let me win so I would feel like I was king. Caught the pistol, ran it in, then I was high as he. Who's kneeled down when I'm and about the sky to me. Like God, the grid, I am about my highest B. Fell in love with the sport when I was high as knees. <laughs> then I went to Jim Thorpe and I knew why I could beast. Blow up and get the paper like them shocker peas. Go up to snake the ball on you yeah, like Monson Flea. Show up, I'll be showing up because I've got to peace. That was the gym Thorpe effect of my philosophy. But somewhere down the line I must have lost the beat. Started going for my feast like I forgot.
1: Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have David Marinus joining us via phone. David, welcome back to Living Writers.
2: Thank you, T. I always love talking with you. <laughs> I I think you're
1: totally one of my favorite return guests. We've had a chance to talk for two of your two of your previous book, For a Good American Family, The Red Scare yep. and My Father, and and Once in a Great City, A Detroit Story. That's uh, right. I think that's when we first met. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and, and today, we're going to talk about your latest, Path Lit by Lightning. David, thanks for making time.
2: My pleasure. Uh, I, I'm actually in the Midwest, although across the, the lake in Wisconsin today. Um, and it's not springtime here yet.
1: I know. There's been a cruel shift in the weather. I think we went from the, the 80s back to some snow. I don't know if it's like that with you, uh, too, but yeah. It is, yeah. Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. This is the title of, of your book. Yep. And, and David, this is epic. You've been talking about the book Path Lit by Lightning now with... The Library of Congress, NPR, Politics and Prose. <laughs> you've, you've been t- talking about the book a lot, and I thank you for making space to come and talk with us at Living Writers here, for everyone here cool. to hear about this story from you and your process. Mm-hmm. We're, we're always interested in that, that angle here at Living Writers. Could you tell us how this book came to be, Because at first, at least in the acknowledgments section, it seems like you almost resisted the idea of making this book. And it's a commitment. This is a major book.
2: Yeah, you're right, T. I I don't know if I resisted it, but what happened was, um, it was more than 20 years ago, I was on a book tour in in Denver at the press club, talking about um, another one of my books, and Afterwards, a gentleman came up to me and identified himself as Norbert Hill from the Oneida Nation tribe in in, uh, Wisconsin. He said, David, I have your next book for you. And he handed me a sheaf of papers that were about Jim Thorpe. And I looked at them, and I, as politely as I could, said, thank you very much. Um, I'm working on a book about Roberto Clemente now, and I don't really take, you know, I have to be obsessed with what I'm writing about. I don't really take suggestions from other people. It has to come organically from within me. But little did I know that Norbert Hill was planting a seed, and it took a while to grow, but boy, it did. And, and uh, about four or five years ago, I became obsessed with Jim Thorpe and thinking about him as sort of the final book in a trilogy of my sports books that are really not about, well, are about sports, but I hope they transcend sports.
1: Yeah. Could you, David, let's talk about that for a moment. This idea of they're t- telling big stories and sports histories using a main character uh, as a lens, but it's not about sports, is it? It's a, It's about the United States. It's
2: about culture here. That's what I try to do. I mean, in all of my books, I'm really interested in illuminating history and sociology, especially. And so, you know, when I say it's a trilogy, the first of those books is my biography of Vince Lombardi, the great football coach. But I really saw that book as a chance to write about what I call the mythology of competition and success in American life, what it takes and what it costs, and also a bit about what I call the fallacy of the innocent past. That we're always looking for some golden era that was um better than than what we have today when in fact that's a fallacy. Yes. So that's what I that's what I explored in that book. In my book on Roberto Clemente, you know, a a beautiful baseball player who was my favorite player, but that's not why I wrote the book. Um he was a Hall of Famer, but um so many athletes are called heroes and almost none are, really. But Clemente was. I mean, his motto in life was, if you have a chance to help others and fail to do so, you're wasting your time on this earth. He lived that motto and died that motto, trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after the earthquake in 1972, when the Nicaraguan strongman, Anastasio Somoza, was holding the aid. Clemente said, if I go, it will get to the people. And he unwittingly boarded a fatal plane crash that barely took off, mm-hmm. uh, and that's how he died. And then Thorpe, you know, sort of the third of that trilogy, uh, not just an athlete who did things that no one had done before or since in terms of the trifecta of being uh, a gold medalist in track and field decathlon and pentathlon, an all-American football player, the first great professional football player, the first president of what would become the National Football League, and a Major League Baseball player, um, among his many all-around talents. Those were just three. Um, But that's not why I wrote the book, either. I just saw the chance to use that dramatic life to explore and illuminate the Native American experience through Jim Thorpe.
1: And you also, you had concerns... About being the one to do that exploration,
2: and- well, I certainly did. Um, you know, I'm, I, 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 my bottom line to you is that I think I can. I've tried to set my sensi- sensibility and sensitivity to be able to write about anything in the world as a curious human being.
1: Yes, curiosity. Of
2: I'm not, but I'm not Native American. Um, so the first thing I did was contact several. Native American activists and uh professors and historians and you know said am I you know I'm thinking of doing this do you think i I'm the one to do it right and i was and and they all were very encouraging so you know i I don't know whether I would have done it without that but but um i I used them um often during the course of my research to try to make sure I was understanding things correctly and had the right Sensibility about things, um, and that was that was crucial to it. And those people included Suzanne Harjo, who is really a, a, an amazing activist based in Washington D.C., who is at the leading edge of uh, forcing sports teams to change their condescending nicknames. And yes. she's really the, the leader of the of the anti to get the Washington football team to change its name. There was a professor at northwestern patty lowe who who I also uh, leaned on quite a bit, along with several others so those are two of the key ones yes, and towards the
1: end of the 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 book too david you you talk about how jim thorpe's son was fight we're jumping way ahead in the story now but but fighting to to reclaim his remains to move them back to Oklahoma. Uh, oh, and um, and there was a play that was created by um, Mary Catherine Nagel and I think yeah. the Susan Harjo as well and, and Mary Catherine's a friend of the show and I can remember her talking oh, oh. about this yeah so it's it's the interconnections of this it's quite lovely and and also important because I this attention of yours that you bring to it is threaded throughout the book this um, awareness of an indigenous person's story that you're telling and, and a respect uh-huh. for that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's what I try to do uh, for the best <laughs> of my abilities. And, um, uh, you know, there is a, there was great tension in Jim Thorpe's life. And, and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. But, you know, there were, there were a lot of points where I knew that where the story was going, but I kept rooting for something Happens, right. How, you know.
1: how do you reckon with that as, as the writer, as the biographer?
2: Well, my motto is just tell the truth. Just tell, mm. tell the story as it appears, um, with sensitivity, but not, with any, not withholding anything. Um, and to try to understand life through the, the sociology, the geography, the culture of the people that I'm writing about. And so, um you know for athletes in general he you know um, they there's sort of you know there's a poem of an athlete to an athlete dying young, and they all do sort of die young because their greatest you know times of life and when they 're in their mid thirties at best, you know so uh there's an afterlife that that they have to deal with and and that's not always a happy thing and but for Jim Thorpe it was. Such a combination of of social fact of you know the factors of of being an indigenous person in this country, and of his own personal struggles um, that I had to sort of figure out how to how to deal with both of those at the same time.
1: Well, because as you said at the top of the program, David, that's telling that part of Jim Thorpe's story. That was what was. So important to you as well. It was recognizing, mm-hmm. you know, of course, that he did things other people couldn't do, winning two gold medals in 1912 for the decathlon and uh, the pentathlon. But to to actually see how the sociology, the sociological factors, the uh, American history that was bearing down on him, and and the uh, the white white privilege, white saviors that were always um, had interventions throughout the life, Mm -hmm. some of them like Pratt with the Carlisle Indian School. He believed he was doing right, but, but not, not so when you look at it from a different positionality. But so it's important, I think that you're telling this whole story, like you said, as as close as you can, with as many voices as you can. And the last voice you have in in all of these pages, in these five hundred and sixty eight pages, is is given to Jim Thorpe's daughter, Grace Thorpe.
2: Uh, well, uh, there's so many things to say. Uh, you know, the first of all, the Indian industri- the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, is at the heart of the book. Uh, you know, it's sort of the pivot of everything. The the Indians boarding school experience in America, which only in the last five or so years has really become a major—I uh, mean, it was always a major problem, but it's become a major issue again in American life, led by uh, Deb Holland, the Secretary of the Interior, to really explore what happened in those schools. But even in a larger sense, Jim Thorpe's life perfectly bracketed the whole— forced acculturation process that, that the American government put upon Indigenous peoples. And he was born in 1887, the very year of the passage of the Dawes Act, which was an attempt to take away communal properties the way that, that Indian nations uh, lived and force them into being private landholders in a rigged system where they lost a lot of that land. That's the year he was born. He was four and five years old when most of the Indian territory of what became Oklahoma was taken away from them. And in the, you know, the glory, the white glory of the Oklahoma land runs, which were really about land thieves and their abettors, you know, the boomers and Sooners, he endured that. And then the whole boarding school process where Richard Henry Pratt, who you mentioned, his motto was kill the Indian, save the man, you know, forced acculturation, take cheer the the young uh, students of their of their locks and take away their religion and language and culture and try to make them into white people, that was part of the process and Then the very year that Jim Thorpe died in one thousand nine hundred and fifty three there was a huge effort in Congress of detribalization to virtually to literally eliminate all native tribes um, so that was, his, it was those are the brackets of his life and then you said i, I at the end, I quote his daughter uh, Grace Thorpe, uh, one of his seven children, um, talking about how, in, you know, in the definition of greatness, that was her father. Yeah,
1: David. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back today on Living Writers. David Marinus, his book, Path Lit by Lightning. <laughs>
0: Receive the same notoriety the mass media has given all these other athletes. I just needed someone great who looked like me. Jim Thorpe, you could be my Muhammad Ali. Afflicted with addiction, alcoholic like Pete. No submitting, both spitting up in college like G's. My focus not there, we probably both got B's. You're the star RB, I'd skip the smoke freeze. When I finally got sober, I became an MC. Messing up on stage, cause I care what people think. I needed your influence, I don't care what people think. See, for me to feel great, man, I needed that drink. Graduated school and flushed the lick down the sink. Now I gotta be you for
1: welcome back if you're just tuning in so glad you did today on the program david marinus joins us via phone from wisconsin the book on the table with us path lit by lightning the life of Jen thorpe david thanks <laughs> thanks again for for being with us here being with me today and talking to everyone today
2: Pleasure to be here.
1: Some kind of hard, <laughs> with the phone sometimes, right?
2: Yeah, I know. I could barely hear you, and now I can hear you again, oh, so good. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, oh, thank goodness. Okay,
1: well, we're back. We're back, and it's so funny yeah. because two disembodied voices out there in the ether. Um, <laughs> but but to, but today we're talking about Pathlet by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, out with Simon & Schuster. The song, David, you gave me the tip about, I think it's Tall Paul, I think Paul it's Paul, yeah. the name. <laughs> yeah. Could you, so when, when did you first hear that song? Because this artist definitely is influenced by Jim Thorpe's life and his legacy oh, and surviving.
2: Uh, yeah. Um, sometime last summer, uh, someone turned me on to Paul Paul, you know, just uh, as I was searching around for different ways of looking at Jim Thorpe. Um, and, uh, so another program used him at some point as well. Uh, 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 an NPR show called "To the Best of Our Knowledge." I don't know if you know that show. Oh, uh, it, it's based out of uh, Madison, Wisconsin, actually my hometown. So that was when I first heard Tall Paul, Paul, and uh, we had a nice connection after that.
1: Oh, wow. Well, I guess shout out to them. Thanks for finding yep. the song and introducing yep. me too now to Tall Paul. Also a great storyteller in his music and, and weaving yep. Jim Thorpe's life and his inspiration in there. Jim Thorpe's story is even, I mean, it's a, it almost sounds impossible to say. It's almost like he's more inspiring because of the wholeness of his life and every, Mm -hmm. and how he kept going. He he, he just kept going in your book. There's so many instances of that at every turn. It's not like he was flawless and the song even points to that, that we just heard, but, um, but who is anyway? Um,
2: Exactly.
1: Before the break, we were talking about Grace, Grace Thorpe, and and how Mm -hmm. she's often asked to speak about her father, were you were you able to? How how often did you speak with Grace Thorpe? Because she is still alive. Well, no, she's not. Oh, she's not. Oh dear. <laughs> no, okay. No,
2: okay. No, no, none. All this book was, you know, this book was different in that sense you than any book I've done. Um, I mean, Jim Thorpe was born in 1887, so <gasps> he, he's long gone, right. and no, book, none of his contemporaries are alive he had seven children or actually eight but his first son jim junior died tragically in the 1918 influenza uh pandemic um at age 3 or 4 and and uh, then he had seven children who lived four sons and three daughters but all of them are gone including grace the one you mentioned um even some of his grandchildren are are dead you know but lived to into their late 70s and 80s. So so it's, it's a few generations removed. And in that sense, like, you know, for my biographies of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, for instance, I probably interviewed 400 people for each of those books. Yes. Um, for this book, interviews were the least available and important part of my research. I certainly found some very good oral histories that helped, but... But there's nobody alive today who could really, I mean, they could, people could talk about um, the larger experience or the boarding school experience, or, or the indigenous, you know, people's experience, but not about Jim Thorpe per se. So I relied more than any book I've done on primary documents, um, letters, uh, old newspaper articles. Um, and archival research all over the country for this one, and and less on on interviews. But I did talk to um, a few of his of his descendants. Uh, I did a, a, a wonderful program actually at the National Archives with one of his granddaughters, um, and uh, and met with some of his grand uh, great grandsons. Who, but but really that was you know unlike any of the other books the interviews were the least important part of the
1: story so it's interesting to to hear because at the at the beginning at the start we were talking about how the idea the seed was planted <laughs> a while yeah. ago but then it did gather for you and then you spent was it 4 to 5 years in sort of this in your words, obsession like you become obsessed yeah. with <laughs> with a topic with a person with a story
2: I become so obsessed i don't know if I told you this story before, but one time <laughs> we were dri- we were driving down a street in washington d c and I turned left, but i didn't turn left into the street. I turned left into a fire station, and my wife, Linda, sort of smacked me around from the. Dr- passenger seat, said, David, what, what chapter are you on? Because
1: you, know? <laughs> you were definitely not quite
2: there. Uh, was right. There. I was thinking about about the book, well, <laughs> how to resolve something.
1: Well, if you're going to so, end up somewhere, I guess at the fire station, you're at least way, sort right? of safe there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then hopefully Linda got in the driver's seat or, or so, or she, she yeah. She, she
2: got me back into uh, consciousness. This or <laughs> yeah.
1: well so this obsession with Jim Jim yeah. Thorpe you also had some you met others who had like you said thank you for yeah. reminding me of the time of this too and how he has been long gone and but you you met people who had boxes of research materials that
2: that they yeah, sh- that was, shared that with
1: was, you was that was that the David Hearst yeah. Thomas archive yeah
2: the David Hurst Thomas archive you know that was I, it was luck, but uh, you know, Branch Rickey used to say the luck is the residue of design. So I was I was um, I was actually talking to Suzanne Harjo, who we've already mentioned, the great uh, Native activist in in D.C., and she said that her father in Oklahoma had met the quote unquote great man once, uh, Jim mm. Thorpe, and that someone inter- had a tape recording interview of that of of her dad talking about it. So I said, well, who was that? And she said, well, his name is David Hurst Thomas. He's the head anthropologist at the Museum of Natural History in New York, um, who was also on the board of advisors or directors or whatever of the uh, National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., which Suzanne was also part of. So I contacted David Hurst Thomas, and he said, yeah, come on up to New York. And I'll talk to you. So I went up there, and his office was on the fifth floor of that grand old museum. You know, you know a, a, an old, musty office full of books <laughs> and artifacts. And, and he was sitting there with his cowboy boots on the desk, and he said, this desk belonged to Margaret Mead, <laughs> who had been a, a co-worker of his earlier. Of course. Um, anyway. <laughs> Yeah. So we were talking for about an hour or two. He had read one of my books. He, he'd read the Lombardi book, actually, because he was a football uh, nut. Mm. So we talked for a couple hours, and he said, well, David, you know, you're the guy. Um, I, I, too, was obsessed with Jim Thorpe. I spent many years uh, doing research and thought I w- would write a biography of him, but I just couldn't do it. He said, and I know you can do it. And by the way, I have eight boxes of material that I can give you. You know, Yeah, so I I had actually gone up to New York on a train, but I (laughs) I went back to D.C., got my station wagon, drove back up, got a friend, and we went back up there and piled all his boxes into my station wagon and brought it back to Washington. Now, not only was that a gold mine, but it was really fortuitous in another way because shortly after that, along came COVID Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, which um, really foreclosed a lot of my normal activities. Uh, I had been able to get to many archives before that, but after that I had to work and find new ways to do things until COVID eased a little bit in the summer times. But I, I had those eight boxes of his material I also found um there was a a writer for uh Life magazine um who had written uh, about the Indian school and he's long dead but I found his sons and they said, Yeah, we got a couple of boxes of his material on <laughs> on on Jim Thorpe, um, but we don't want it. <laughs> so thanks for calling, we'll send it to you. More you know, boxes. Another, yeah. And then, you know, and then, of course, I did my normal archival research. Uh, one of the great places for me was the Beinecke uh, Rare Book and Archive at, at Yale University, which had all of the papers of Richard Henry Pratt, the founder of the mm. Carlisle Indian Industrial School. But also, interestingly to me, the papers of the great uh, indigenous writer N. Scott Momaday. Oh. Um Yeah, and all his papers are up there. And it turned out when I looked at them that he too was obsessed with Jim Thorpe and had written an un, uh, a uh, screenplay that was never produced ah, about Jim Thorpe. Yes. and to do that he had done a lot of research himself. So that was another gold mine for me. Oh
1: wow! Oh, I'm so so glad. Also a friend of the show and Scott Momaday. Uh-huh. Oh oh uh, that's great. oh wow. So so you had this. Then this access to the screenplay, which then is like this, um, it, imaginatively you can enter into that world right. and read that and the
2: language of it. Oh, ex- uh, yes, very much so. It was very, very helpful um, in that way, and sort of helping me get the right sense of, sensibility about everything. So, and and Mama had written extensively. I think he wrote another play about a boarding school and some young men running away from one and so you know which was a constant process of of young uh indians running away from those schools because they were repressive in so many ways
1: so going back to something you said david uh, david hurst thomas he said so even with those eight boxes of like obviously obsession and, and gathering yeah. and um he said he can't do it so what was that about did you have a sense of that cuz he seemed to think you were one who could is it because you had these first two books of this trilogy or so i don't know he knew- if
2: there was that I, I think he knew uh, i mean he knew that I, I knew how to write a biography and he wasn't sure he could figure it out um i i don't think there was anything really more to it than that um he'd written a couple of books so i know he knew how to write a book but i think a biography is a different uh Sort of genre than what he had written before, which are more uh, academic books. So how how is that? I wish I could explain it. I mean, a lot of it is just I don't. I mean, it's magic or it's. Uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> first of all, first of all, it's a lot of organization, right? I mean, I always sit, tell people that every hour you spend organizing your material saves you three hours of writing. So I try to figure out how to organize my material first. I don't do like 500-page outlines like one of my great friends, Rick Atkinson, does for his military histories, because um, I I try to let the sort of magic of writing take over at different points. Yes. So for you know, so I might have a chapter. I might have a one-page outline for of where I want it to start what I call the stations of the cross of that <laughs> that chapter, um what the the theme of that chapter is, how it how it adds and builds on to what I've written before and where it will take take the reader. But that's about it. And then and then I just let it go and and just keep telling myself, just tell the story. And that's what I try to do. So you know, breaking it down a bit, I, having the right organizational skills, having confidence in your storytelling abilities, knowing what to put in or what to leave out, although that's a very subjective <laughs> issue. And I tend to put more in than some people, um, but that's just me. you know. And I, so if a reviewer says, well, you had too much information, I say, fine, that's what I do. It's <laughs> um, part of
1: your style, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah it is. Um, detail. It's it's what interests me. I mean, I think, I think mm. every writer. I mean, you do have to think about your readers, but you also have to think about what your readers want. Is is your sensibility and yes, you know, it's not just. Uh, I mean, that's that's. I hope where artificial intelligence yes. <laughs> will fail. <laughs> that's
1: ex- when you said yeah. that, David. That. That's exactly what I thought of too, and that's the first time yeah. I immediately went to that. But yes, you're right.
2: Unfortunately that's where we have to go now, just worry about it. But so no, anyway, that's what I try to do. And I think David Hurst Thomas knew that I was that I was that I could do it and he wanted the story told, so and he just felt he just couldn't do it.
1: When you say wanted the story to be told, and we know there's nuances and the sociological Mm -hmm. factors, Mm -hmm. what is the Jim Thorpe story that we do we cannot forget?
2: I mean, there's one there's one story that's particular to him, which is what happened to him when he lost his gold medals and why, and how. You know, you mentioned the word a white savior before. Well, that's what happened to him. So that's one story which I can tell or not. And then there's a larger story of of um, a tendency to look at the struggles of minority groups as tragedy. And I tend to look at at the story of of native peoples and of Jim Thorpe as one of perseverance against the odds. Yes, and not and not as tragedy even though there are there are unfortunate and and even tragic elements to it david Uh,
1: let's take a short break and then when let's pick up right there okay today on the program david marinus is here path lit by lightning the life of jim thorpe i'm t hetzel we'll be right back
0: that I had identity crisis. I thought not even supposed to save me from how serious my life is. Young native growing up without his culture. No role models to show me it was out here. Didn't have a daddy, and mama's gone for weeks. You would think it's romance the way you swept us off our feet. The foster home is the modern day boarding school. Kill the Indian and save the man. You know the rule. Matter of fact, old Jim Thorpe knew it too. It took the life from us and made it all dark and blue. We were all athletically gifted. But when we played them white kids, somehow we just missed it. In the big street football games, I see now more than
1: Welcome present. back. If you're just tuning in, you're just in time. Today on Living Writers, David Marinus is here Path lit by lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, and we just uh we just we just heard Tall Paul singing about Jim Thorpe. And today on the program David Marinus. David Marinus is joining us via phone. <laughs> um we're talking about the story not being one necessarily as it's often framed in in the U.S. and U.S. Mm-hmm. history of of tragedy of the, of the minority populations in the U.S. the struggles, but rather one of perseverance and the keeping going. Mm-hmm.
2: And Jim Thorpe emblemizes that for um, indigenous peoples. Uh, you know, I, there's a point in the book where I write about. I think it's 1915, and the most popular statue in America is called the End of the Trail. And it's a statue of a, of an Indian slumped on horseback, the horse drooped, and the notion is that, that it's a dying race and will soon be dead, uh, Indigenous peoples. and And it didn't happen. You know, there were at one point fewer than 300,000 Native peoples left in this in this country after there'd been many millions before, uh, you know, before Europeans got here, but it's back to a few million. Now there's still a lot of troubles, but, but um, there's a resurgence of, of cultural identity and purpose in, in native peoples. And, and they survived and Jim Thorpe did as well. He had a lot of, you know, I mentioned all of the ways that society was working to uh, diminish him. He went through all of that and kept going through three heart- a- two heart attacks through jobs all over the country. He lived in twenty different states. He didn't get the coaching jobs that he hoped he would get it was always something just out of reach, often because of of discrimination sometimes because of his own struggles with alcohol and other things but but I, I, you know, I just looked at his life and said, this guy just kept going no matter what until he he died. Um, and I thought that was emblematic of, of his people. You know, I did, I did consider, you know, because I kept rooting for him. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I knew that, that, you know, what the ending was, that he would die of a heart attack and a a trailer house in Lomita, California, at age sixty-five, but uh, there was something—I I don't know. I mean, I, I'm—I found something uh, really uh, uplifting in in that in that difficult life that he led and how he kept going.
1: He keeps going, in that his memory is still alive and. You're, you're also people become, there's, is something about the story that, that gets right into you (laughs) and, and it, and it isn't over yet. And and there are things that keep changing, I think as recently as Mm -hmm. last year, right, right, David, in 2022 with the Olympic committee, finally, finally putting his name as the name of record back where yep. it belongs in in the 1912. Uh-huh. Yeah, could you talk about this a little bit?
2: Sure, 110 years too late. So, <laughs> I mean, at, at the center of the of the book is 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 the gold medals and what happened to them. You know, he won them in in Stockholm in 1912. He was the greatest athlete in the world by far. He came back to the United States and was celebrated and then a story broke that he'd played Bush League Baseball in the Eastern Carolina League for two summers. And immediately, his trophies and records were sent and, and medals were sent back to Europe, and his records were stricken from the Olympic books. He was stripped of everything. And it was, in my uh, research, I found it to be unfair, unjust in so many different ways. Yes. Uh, The first way is that, yes, he he did play uh, minor league baseball for two summers for about a dollar a day or $30 a month. So did literally scores of uh, of college athletes, and most of them played under aliases. Um, Even Dwight Eisenhower played in the Kansas State League under the name Wilson um, to maintain their eligibility. Thorpe played under the name Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. His name was in the papers in North Carolina for two summers every day. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, was nothing about it that was underhanded on his part.
1: The other athletes that you name, like like Eisenhower, for example, white, white athletes.
2: Yeah, yeah, they, 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 they right, exactly. Secondly, um, the people who turned him in, turned the records back, included uh Pop Warner who was his coach at Carlisle. You know, people might know the Pop Warner youth football of today. Pop Warner was a brilliant football coach, very innovative, at first at Carlisle and also at Pitt and later at Stanford. But he was he was not a good human being. And um at the moment of crisis for Jim Thorpe, Pop Warner lied about it and said he didn't know what Jim Thorpe had been doing, and wrote a letter under Jim Thorpe's name, sort of claiming that he was just a, you know, an innocent, naive Indian who didn't know any better. When in fact, Pop Warner knew exactly what Jim Thorpe had been doing. He had been sending his his athletes down to play baseball for years. The scout who brought Thorpe to that a minor league, was one of Pop Warner's best friends. Um, So he just lied to save his own reputation, as did James E. Sullivan, who was the head of the American Olympic Committee and of the Amateur Athletic Union in that period, but also on the Board of Advisors of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School Athletic Program. He knew what the Thorpe was going that for that period playing baseball, and he too lied about it, and they're the two people who made the decisions to send his medals and trophies back. So, you know, I I consider them villains in this piece. But then there's the issue of what's a professional and what's an amateur. Um, Jim Thorpe played baseball, which had nothing to do with the events that he won (laughs) his gold medals in, the Olympics in track and field. One of his uh, teammates on that Olympic team was Another future general, George S. Patton, who competed in what was called the modern pentathlon. It was all military-style events, uh, fencing, rifle shooting, equestrian. Patton had been being paid by the Army to trade for those events for years. Paid! Was he a a (laughs) professional or an amateur, right? Jim Thorpe is the one who loses his medals. And then finally... Even technically, it was unjust in that the Olympic bylaws of that era said that for a, to challenge someone's amateurism, the challenge had to be filed within 30 days of the end of the Olympics. Um, this didn't happen until six months later. You know, there was hypocrisy, uh, moral injustice, even technical wrong in Jim Thorpe losing his medals. And yet they weren't finally restored until 2022. You know, long, long after he died.
1: And his children and some and of his, his grandchildren.
2: grandchildren. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. In 1983, before the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, there was sort of a half-baked effort to, to uh, restore. Not as, the, the Olympic Committee gave his children, who were then alive, replica medals. In 1983. But they didn't change the record book. So even when I was writing this book, you know, in, in 2020, 2021, the Olympic record books that I was looking at didn't even have Thorpe's name in them. He was stricken completely from them until 2022.
1: Let's take a short break and then we'll be back. Today on Living Writers, David Marinus joins us via phone from Wisconsin. His book, Path Lit by Lightning The Life of Jim Thorpe. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
0: Every native athlete is what I miss. At least I can share your legacy with my kid. Them other athletes are dope, but they ain't go. Nope. nope. Sitting bow was great, but ain't your war, ain't sport. It's time I shit about your name with ain't Spoke. All I hear about is cheese, but they're all the cease. Man, I wish I could have seen you play ball on TV. I wish that you received the same notoriety the mass media has given all these other athletes. I just needed someone great who looked like me. Jim Thorpe, you could be my Muhammad Ali. Afflicted with addiction, alcoholic like P. No submitting bow, spitting up in college like G's. My focus' not there probably both got bees. You're the star RB. I skipped a small trees When I finally got sober, I became an MC. Messing up on stage because I care what people think. I needed your influence. I don't care what people think. See,
1: me, You've Got Loving Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. David Marinus is here via phone. Path lit by lightning. The life of Jim Thorpe, Olympic gold medalist from 1912 Stockholm Olympics. Hey, David, have you had a chance to look at the the Olympic website recently with Jim Thorpe's <laughs> name? Have you looked at that page? <laughs> you know, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't. Well, no, why and, would you? you? No, 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 I, you shouldn't, <laughs> no. I, <laughs> I, and then I'll move on. But I was, cause I wanted to double check. Okay, so I hear that it's changed. Where's like some web uh, okay. record of it or so. I mean, I would believe you of all people, of yeah, course, right. but not. Right.
2: right. Not, well, the, the, yeah. the, week, the week they made the decision, I did look, um, but uh, at, at what they were saying about it, and, and so I know that it happened, but I, I haven't looked at it recently. I don't know. I feel like
1: you should. <laughs> now I'm going to give you a to-do list. I know you're already working on another yeah. book, and I want to yeah. talk with you about the project next, right after this. But um, it, I feel like could you could you email them and have a word david Marinus? because <laughs> because just the lead sentence like how they're framing this even is exactly the opposite of how you have approached your book pathlit by lightning yeah. the lead sentence in it says died in poverty oh
2: uh-huh.
1: like that's the first phrase phrasing right instead right. of <laughs> instead of uh-huh denied his rightful <laughs> gold medals right. and records yeah. for yeah. this many wow. years. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think it's important that you wrote this book, that Tall Paul is singing this song, <laughs> that these stories mm-hmm. are out there because the people know, right? And mm-hmm. And that I believe has brought pressure to these institutions like the Olympic Committee, that have had, they've got a dicey past in many ways, too. You know,
2: think so. you would say that, B, because just last night, I was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. You were. Speaking, speaking to colonels at the U.S. Army War College, which is what is now at what was the, the Carlisle, Carlisle Institute yeah. School. Yeah. And it was a fascinating discussion where they were talking, about the, the general, the commandant at, of Carlisle was, was my host, and he said that in the two years he's been there, the most moving things he's dealt with are the repatriation of uh, yes. of, of many of the young uh, students who died there, you know, more than 100 years ago, um, with the, the tribes coming to Carlisle, and and holding services and, and taking the bones back home. Um, and then, so that was one part of it. And then several of the, of the colonels who were there studying were asking me, do you think that we should still honor Pop Warner, you know, oh, whose right. house is there right? <laughs> or Richard Pratt yep. who has a plaque there, you know? So they they were dealing with all those issues um, as well, you know, and I think that's part of the, the consciousness of this moment that that's happening what
1: what what were you able to say to them david what was what did well, you think was, in the moment
2: they, well they were mostly uh they were they were very progressive about it. I mean they thought that you know one one of the colonels said you know pop Warner was not just didn't just treat Jim Thorpe wrong, he was abusing his his players you know right. um uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not sure we should be so proud of the fact that he was the coach here. So I didn't have to I didn't have to make too many arguments. They were sort of uh, they'd read the book and they were sort of on that side already. And of course, the U.S. military has been changing the names of a lot of the forts in the south that were named after Confederate generals. So um Yes. You know, they're they're, they're doing some, some some good things.
1: I'm I'm glad they're With thinking it, but, of also yeah. changing the Pratt, maybe, because you probably can't take the house off the hill <laughs> or right. so um as you yeah. write about it in the book, but
2: And part of that is because of the native peoples who've come there for those repatriation efforts and walked the ground and seen this monument to Plot to Pratt and saying, What's this about? you know. Kill the Indian, save the man, or the—he wanted to kill us.
1: Yes, and and he did in a way. He really did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's. So what, what are you what are you working on now? What's the what's the newest obsession? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, this is gonna make you laugh. Um, <laughs> my wife would tell you that I'm taking a gap year. <laughs> oh, okay. But what's. What's the story behind um, the story? The story behind the story is I'm working on a big project for the Washington Post (gasps) along with uh, my colleague Sally Jenkins who's a great sports columnist. We did a story together last November about um, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, where we found um, photographs of, of him as one of the young white students standing in the schoolhouse door preventing african-americans from desegregating uh in north little rock arkansas um it was part of a larger story about why there aren't more black coaches in the national football yes. league Yes. and using jones as an example as the most powerful owner so anyway sally and i enjoyed working together so much that we decided we'd do another one and all I can say is our next story is about Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan. The uh, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee for, uh, and sort of the most powerful member of the Republican Congress right now.
1: <laughs> I Sorry about my... I was like, okay, I know the name, but I was not <laughs> placing him. Apparently, there's some some level of denial that's that's happening (laughs) i understand
2: that's the guy
1: that's the guy well then good on you and good on sally jenkins too david so are you always writing with multiple projects Uh, because i know you have obsessions um, but what's it like
2: yeah I mean that's all that's what i do <laughs> i'm not, I, you know I'm not very good at anything else, but I love to report and write, and that, luckily that's my life <laughs> um but I'm also kind of lazy, you know i <laughs> I can goof off too, but somehow I produce a lot for a lazy guy.
1: I, I think also that to defend you, maybe your laziness is also you mulling things over, for yeah, example, that's even that's when you're you're driving. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. sometimes the mind needs that to make some of its connections.
2: Yeah, it's somewhere between a rationalization and the truth. Right, right. <laughs> but, but um But absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I work things out in my mind and I, you have to sort of slow down to do that. Well,
1: so maybe I'll get to see you and Sally Jenkins for the the next book tour then. Maybe that's That'll something that's coming yeah. down the down the pike. Sure. Before we go, David, could you say a word be- about the title? Because it is one of my, I oh, don't know, sure. it's one of my favorite parts, too. <laughs> oh,
2: thanks. Yeah, Passed It by Lightning. So Jim Thorpe, was was actually a twin. He and his twin brother Charlie were born in May of 1887 along the North Canadian River in Indian Territory of what became Oklahoma. And on the the night that they were born there was a big thunderstorm over the river with lightning, a lightning storm. And so he was given this he was a, from the Sac and Fox Nation and he was given the name Wathoha. Which is often translated just to "bright path," but I saw a, trans- a more a more evocative translation of it to be "path lit by lightning." And as soon as I saw that, I said, "That's the title of my book." So "path lit by lightning" is Jim Thorpe's second fox name.
1: His mom didn't she also say, "You're the reincarnation of Black Hawk" as well? That's
2: like, absolutely good, his- yeah. Because Black Hawk was a second fox in the 18, in 18, early 1800s. Um, you know, the Black Hawk War, so-called, which was a massacre of second fox people, occurred in 1832, and he was captured. And, and one of his great nieces was Jim Thorpe's grandmother. So there was a lineal connection. And then a spiritual connection which was more important to the family which was his mother always telling little Jim that he was the reincarnation of the great warrior Blackhawk.
1: That gives you extra strength, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thank you so much, David, for talking today. I hope you're, I know you're heading, you mentioned you were heading to L.A., after Wisconsin. <laughs> so happy happy travels and safe journey. Thank and, you, and, and I, yeah,
2: I always love talking with you, so my pleasure.
1: Thank you, David. I always love it too. Thanks for the conversation today, and thanks everyone out there for listening, all those living writers out there writing. Many thanks to Reverend Andrew for engineering for us today here at Living Writers. Half-Lit by Lightning, David Marinus. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
0: the ball let's define what's the greatest. It ain't about marketing and being famous. So we can't exclude the nameless and faceless just because they didn't have the frames then the trace it. With that said, let's get down to some basics. I don't think a one sport athlete can claim it unless other measurables reach out to the spaces. Haven't seen that, it's just facts that I'm stating. There's a lot of great names erased on that basis. In baseball, Jordan never made it to the majors. Boxing was the only sport I made the papers. But he used this platform to fade all the races. So next to Jim Thorpe, he's my vote for the A-list. Bo was the First two sport All Star, but Jim Thorpe epitomized durability. A star in many sports with great versatility. He won gold in the Olympic decathlon, a ten event competition. Can you grasp on? Played football with no face mask on. A three time champ with the Bulldogs of Canton. It's a be clear he put his teams on his back. As a place kicker, punter, and a running back. Put the ball in his hands and he run it back. An All American college football champ. He was decent playing Major League Baseball. If you don't know about him, you should probably face palm. Got inducted into three. Major Hall of Fame, track and field, the NFL, and the NCAA. Some hottie sports fans still got none to say. I guess they didn't have Sports Center in his day. Leather shoes, no drugs, no hope. To accomplish all that, bro, he's gotta be go. All I hear about is cheese, but they're all undeceased. Man, I wish I could've seen you play ball on TV. I wish that you received the same notoriety the mass media has given all these other athletes. I just needed someone great who looked like me. Jim Thorpe, you could be my Muhammad Ali. Afflicted with addiction, alcoholic like P. No submitting, both spitting up in college like G my focus not there, we probably both got bees you're the star rb i skip the small trees when i finally got sober i became an mc messing up on stage because i care what people think i needed your influence i don't care what people think see for me to feel great man i needed dead drink graduated school and flushed the lick down the sink now i gotta be you for kids who wanna be me my time machine, reminiscing everything was so promising, simply let me win so I would feel like I was king. Ended and then I was high as he. Who's kneeled down when I'm proud about the sky to me? Like God, the grid, I am about my highest B. Fell in love with the sport when I was high as knees. Then I learned the gym thrope, and I knew I could be. Blow up and get the paper like them shocker peas. Go up to snake, fall on you like my fleet. Show up, i be showing up because I've got the peace. That was the gym thrope perfecting my philosophy. But somewhere down the line, I must have lost the beat. Started going in for my feast, like I forgot my teeth. Gym thorpe is in, in the public conscious P. All i ever see was black and white on colored screens. All I hear about is cheese but they're all longer seas, Man, I wish I could have seen you play ball on TV. I wish that you would see the same notoriety. The mass media has given all these other athletes. I just needed someone great who looked like me. Jim Thorpe, you could be my Muhammad Ali. Afflicted with addiction, alcoholic like Pete. No submitting, both spitting up in college like G's. My focus not there. we probably both got B's. You're the star RV? I'd skip the smoke trees. When I finally got sober, I became an MC. Messing up on stage because I care what people think. I needed to influence. I don't care what people think. See, for me to feel great, man, I need that drink. Graduated school to flush the link down the sink. Now I gotta be you, kids who wanna be me. I was young, Jim was in one and now one. Cause even though he's goat, he was always out young. Supposed to say you're about a top gun when they never said a word about them, not one. All I heard was Tyson, Jackson, and Jordan. It made me feel like other races were more than. On top of that, I had identity crisis. I'm not even supposed to save me from how serious my life is. Young native blowing up without his culture. No role models to show me you was out here. Didn't have a daddy, mama was gone for weeks. You would think it's romance the way you swept us off our feet. The foster home is the modern-day boarding school. Kill the Indian and say the man, you know the rule. Matter of fact, old Jim Thorpe knew it too. It took the life from us and made all dark and blue. We were all athletically gifted, but when we played them white kids, somehow we just missed it. In the big street football games, I see now it's more mental than anything. Became resentful of my one true queen. Started clouding everything with blunts and things. Giving women fists instead of diamond rings. When they deserve my heart and all the finer things. Dang, old Jim, we got a lot in. I'm glad I finally came around to flip the timing. Cause you're the type of hero I know I could vibe with. A legendary native athlete is what I miss. At least I can share your legacy with my kids. The mother athletes are dope, but they ain't go. No. Nope. Sitting ball was brave, but ain't your war ain't sport. It's time I shut up about your name with thanks, sport. All I hear about is cheese, but the role of deceased. Man, I wish I could have seen you play ball on TV. I wish that you received the same you notoriety the mass media has given all these other athletes. I just needed someone great who looked like me. Jim Thorpe, you could be my Muhammad Ali i with addiction, alcoholic like P, no submitting both spitting up in college like G's. My focus not there, we probably both got B's. You the star RB. I skipped the smoke trees. When I finally got sober, I became an MC. Messing up on stage. Cause I care what people think. I needed your influence, I don't care what people think. See, for me to feel great, man. I needed that drink. Graduated school, the flush the lick down I sink. Now I gotta be. You forget to wanna be me. First of all, let's define what's the greatest. It ain't about marketing and being famous. So we can't exclude the nameless and faceless. Just because because they didn't have the frames, and the tracing. With that said, let's get down to some basics. I don't think a one-sport athlete can claim it, unless all the measure was reached out to the spaces. Haven't seen that, it's just facts that I'm stating. There's a lot of great names erased on their basis. In baseball, Jordan never made it to the majors. Boxing was the only sport I lead, made the papers. But he used this platform to fade all the races. So next to Jim thought, he's my vote for the A-list. Vote with the Cool sport all star, but Jim Thorpe epitomized durability. A minis sports with great versatility. He won gold in the Olympic decathlon, a ten-event competition. Can you grasp on? Play football with no face mask on, a three-time champ with the Bulldogs a Canton. And to be clear, he put his teams on his back as a place kicker, punter, and a running back. Put the ball in his hands and he won it back. An All-American college football champ. He was decent player. Man. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You are now tuned into Drum Break, and I'm your host, DJ Free Jazz. This show is 30 minutes of jungle, drum and bass, atmospheric, intelligent DMB. You know what it is. Stay tuned.